0: Hi, this is Lindsey Miller, and you're listening to the Arkansas Times Week Interview Podcast, recorded Friday, April the 29th. On this week's edition, we're going to talk about Desa Hutchinson's pre-presidential race appearance in New Hampshire, the latest on the mystery of the missing Arkansas Museum of Fine Arts sculpture, and the Little Rock School District's new superintendent. I'm joined, as usual, by Max Brantley. Good afternoon. So we we mentioned last week that uh, the Asa Hutchinson all that said that he was kind of considering a presidential run. He had a uh, a big speech in in New Hampshire this week. I mean, big is a relative word, but uh, what did he say?
1: Well, he was introduced glowingly by uh, the governor of New Hampshire. Uh, Sununu is, is a rational conservative. And his talking point line was, I'm a problem solver, not a chaos creator. And without naming names, uh, he pretty clearly was referring to Donald Trump. And he kind of said he didn't believe in going after culture war issues as a way to campaign. But but I don't think he said anything that really set him very far apart. I mean, he whether it's immigration or, or social issues, I mean, he's... He's just about as far right as the rest of them are. He's just nicer about it. Uh, it's a little hard to, I, I noticed that the speech got virtually no national attention, which is not particularly surprising. It's early for one thing. But New Hampshire is a big uh, platform and it was at this co- political institution there that has a regular series of speakers of people who are seeking the national stage. and. And he seemed to be re- received uh, politely, and and I think that that's the story about ASA. Really, is 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 there room in today's Republican Party for somebody who campaigns that I'm I'm your granddaddy's presidential candidate? You know, and I I don't know. I mean, I, he, he's not a base stirrer, That's for sure. I just don't think there's a base for a, a rational conservative anymore. Irrationality rules of the day. Shame is no longer a factor, and the truth is no longer a factor, and the facts don't matter much either. So,
0: so as Hutchinson plays footsie with uh, the presidential bid and or or some other higher office, he's clearly auditioning for something. Do you anticipate that to change his the way he handles governing in Arkansas?
1: Not very much. I mean that that's the that's the thing that's always irked me is whatever he appears to be, he is a far right conservative in just about every respect. I mean, every once in a while, for example, on the, the, the overreaching bill to prohibit medical service for transgender kids, he, he shows a slight dash of compassion. But otherwise He's everywhere. He claims there's a border crisis. He sent our National Guard down there on what was a fool's mission, and which has been proved by the Texas Tribune to be a, a total, bunch of baloney. Uh, just last week, he rounded up governors to sign a letter asking Biden to reverse his policy on on firing. Basically collective bargaining agreements on any federally financed project bigger than thirty-five million dollars. It's just your standard anti-union republicanism. And, you know, I mean that certainly won't hold him hurt him in the Republican Party, but it's just all real familiar kind of stuff. That's he just believes that stuff on abortion. He's uh he's you know, he's an absolute prohibitionist. He's switched over on school vouchers. I I, I don't see <laughs> If he changes, it would only be worse, I suppose. He's he uh, what, what he's done on refusing the rental assistance is just is cruel. There isn't any other word for it. You know, we could have 145 million dollars coming in here, and, and he refused it to help poor people pay their rent. And what's more, he basically lied about it. He says, Well, we've got some money in reserve for that. Well, he's got six million dollars, and he's not giving it rental assistance, he's giving it for his little pet projects to. Our house and other agencies to spend on little programs, and so, so I said, no, I, it's just going to be more of the more of the same, to tell you the truth. But, you know, I, but and he's and he's such a lame duck too. You know, I mean, it's with each week, it's closer to the end, and the the election noise drowns out most everything he wants to do. I think.
0: Uh, We also had, unsurprisingly, the Department of Human Services sending out notice uh, warning uh, or asking folks (laughs) to prepare for the end of
1: the the COVID-19. Yeah, the the state of emergency, which meant you didn't have to re-up your your Medicaid qualifications over and over again. You know, they issued this news release that it was time to re-up on the news that Biden had just extended. The, the, the period into July, but they want everybody to be ready, and they say not to worry. We've got all kinds of great new computer systems for people to register on. And I thought, this is in a state that is is one of the most underserved in America on on broadband, where poor people don't have computers, much less Wi-Fi accounts at their home. And and the notion that there there almost seems an an urgency and a glee. That they're going to get to start really working those roles again and throwing people off of Medicaid, but that that's that's not unpopular with the base. Again, this is another thing that doesn't do anything but build his bona fides as a as a rock rib punish the poor conservative.
0: All right, well let's let's move on and talk about something that we've discussed in previous weeks, and that is the case of the missing sculpture at the arkansas museum of fine arts of course formerly known as the arkansas art center uh, there's a, a large red steel sculpture that was something like 27 feet tall and 50 some odd feet wide that for years stood outside the back entrance to the art center and it uh as eagle-eyed observers noticed uh, months ago it disappeared and and uh Museum of Fine Arts uh, staff wouldn't say where it was, said it was a a property of the foundation. And dribs and drabs have come out. And finally, Victoria Ramirez, the head of the museum, who is also part of the foundation, admitted that it had been scrapped.
1: Yeah, it was kind of a, a news dump late Friday that the news, they finally admitted the scrapping. And that prompted me to write something of a screed about a lot of questions that were not answered about the disposition of this sculpture, and and I sent her a note asking if anybody besides Walter Husband's newspaper could could get answers to questions about it. And she finally called me back, and 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 we had a long discussion. And. And she began by saying, "I have some talking points here that the foundation has provided, making it pretty clear that she was more or less reading from a script, and she didn't venture far beyond it. But I will say this, she gave a long explanation for why they why they decided to get rid of of the statue or sculpture, and why and why they put it out for scrap. And it was that. They just, it had to be moved for construction. That made sense. It was corroding, it needed to be repainted, it needed new footings. They got bids for the restoration ranging from $33,000 to $38,000. They'd had an old uh, evaluation of it only being worth $1,500. She said they tried to find some comparables. They found a comparable by the same sculptor that was only $450. They have an art committee. They have a they have a deaccessioning policy or disposition policy. It went through the art committee. They made and includes a member who she wouldn't identify, who's not on the foundation board, and they made the recommendation that they should get rid of it, and that the only and that there was nobody readily apparent who had the resources to restore it and find another home for it. So they decided to scrap it. Uh, that they found somebody who was willing to scrap it for free for the value of the, of the iron that was in it. No money was paid. And so all of that, all of that is a perfectly reasonable explanation. But my question to her was, and the question I started the interview with was, is why didn't you just say this at the start? Why, was, why did you refuse to answer where it was? and she more or less agreed that it had been a public relations problem for the foundation and the museum and that that was part of the reason she was talking to me this week and answering these questions that the foundation simply which is private and which is a nominal owner of every all the art in the museum doesn't want to answer questions about management of the collection and you know, there's even a defense of that to the extent that, you know, you don't want to have to get in the position of justifying everything you buy and everything you sell. And I kind of get that to a way, but they have, they have put forward this secrecy for so long that it's, it's left a sour taste in the mouths of a lot of people who are longtime supporters of the Arkansas Art Center, now the Arkansas Museum of Fine Arts. And she more or less acknowledged that. And, and and the difference here, of course, was this was a really large, visible thing, iconic, if you will, simply because it had been there for half a century. It also was placed in honor of the original major benefactor of the museum, Jeanette Rockefeller. And so this was just clearly something where an explanation was old, and they finally did it, and I think they realized they hurt themselves. They're still not ready to say when the, when the museum is going to reopen. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of problems, as there always are, in construction, and they hope soon to announce the grand opening. And They promise to be an inclusive place and not be a private club for billionaires, as sometimes people view the museum under the leadership. The foundation leadership of warren Stevens, but it is a public it's a public institution it gets millions in tax money uh, it's on public land they they need to be a little more sensitive to the public and i i really i really think they gave themselves a black eye with this as, as i say i'm not a particular fan of standing red and i think they make a reasonable explanation for the decision they made their key error was being such jerks about it and 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 being secretive and not acknowledging the obvious, which it was gone and wasn't coming back.
0: All right, well, we will continue to cover uh, Museum of Fine Arts, uh, hopefully to celebrate the opening and and they will (laughs) mend their ways. Uh, Moving on, Little Rock School District Board voted unanimously on Tuesday to hire Jamal Wright to be the next Little Rock School District Superintendent. Uh, Wright now serves as superintendent of the Mississippi Achievement School District, uh, which encompasses a a couple of uh, struggling districts. And he previously worked in Birmingham and Washington DC. I I did not meet him or attend any of the meetings when he was here. But uh, Jim Ross, who's a former school board member and Arkansas Times contributor, covered it, and much of what Wright said, I thought was was very impressive, and and what the district needs.
1: Well, and 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 I trust Jim on that. I haven't met him either, and and I do think there were some people who thought the other finalists. I think he was from Atlanta. Is that right? Uh,
0: Well, he he worked for the University of Virginia. I'm not sure where he lived, though, somewhere else.
1: But he'd he'd been in some school districts. He'd shown some success elsewhere in bringing people back to a district, which is something that would be useful in Little Rock. But Wright, who won the job, has shown some effectiveness in lifting children uh, who are in the district, and we need that, certainly, and with a big emphasis on classroom teachers and a big emphasis on literacy in the early grades. And... Those are good things. Uh, To me, the the most significant news of the hiring was a unanimous school board vote. Yeah, The, the board, the board is mostly together, but there are a few outliers that have some differences, philosophical and otherwise. And this comes after six years of state control that followed control that happened almost primarily because of the deep division on the school board that. That led to some key votes on the State Board of Education to take the district over because the board was dysfunctional. And so having a now expanded nine member board all agree on something, that's a hopeful sign for the school district.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so uh, Ross said that, that Wright right uh, talked a lot about accountability and uh, you know that we didn't need more tests. He talked about uh, districts adding endless new programs, which is something the LRSD has certainly done and and how we need to really get back to the basics. Uh, he argued that growth should not be uh, a metric that we put a lot of stock into, uh, that, that we should really focus on getting kids to perform at grade level. Of course, you'll have to battle the state on a lot of these things, but um, that's sure. That's all, that's all right, as far as I'm concerned. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to meeting them and, and learning more about them. Um, well,
1: there's the still a the still large lingering problem with the Rock School District is it's going to be overpopulated percentage-wise with children from, from difficult economic backgrounds. And so it's going to be a harder place to achieve. And the pressure is growing ever stronger for expansion, not just of charter schools, but they continue to expand, but expansion of school vouchers and what those things mean is inevitably take the students more likely to succeed and leave behind those less likely to succeed. And so I, I you know, I'm still in the position of of Little Rock being in a very perilous position, no matter how how smart the new superintendent
0: is? Yeah, certainly. Well, it's uh, good to have a, a strong school board and a promising superintendent, and someone who still has kids in the district. I'm I'm rooting hard that that it can hold on. Uh, all right, let's let's move on to endorsements. What do you got this week?
1: Well, an odd. I, I read a book, which <laughs> is it's hard for me to do because I can't stay awake very long, but. I happen to see a brief mention of a book that was written by a guy who I met in Little Rock oh 25 years ago. He was covering the the presidential campaign for the New York Post at the time, a guy named William Newman. and he went on to work for the New York Times, and fascinating guy and a good guy. And he became, eventually the Andes region correspondent for The New York Times. He spoke Spanish fluently, and he one of his things he did on the side was translate. Books into Spanish and from Spanish into English. So I mean he's he really is immersed in Spanish culture. Well he's written a book called Things Aren't So Bad That They Can't Get Worse. And it's about a subject that I knew absolutely nothing about. I could find Venezuela on a map, but that's about as far as I could go. And he chronicles the recent history of Venezuela, the Chavez leadership, followed by Maduro, the socialist structure, the what the uh, terrible things that have have befallen on Venezuela from having the biggest source of oil in the world and spending it in profligate and corrupt ways, and and it's it's just a, it's a, and and the Trump administration getting involved and making a further mess of things and trying to influence policy and elections in Venezuela. It's a fascinating political read, but the thing is, is it's so deeply. Rep- but he spent so much time there. And the thing that is so gripping about it is the abject, incredible poverty and, and and terrible living conditions for huge numbers of people in Venezuela. About a fifth of the country has fled the country. It's so bad. That is mass electrical blackouts, hyperinflation, where you you can't, you know, it takes a million dollars for a bus ticket. I mean, it's just... Lack of food, lack of water the what they're suffering there is just unbelievable, and all these things were just i mean the, the shades fell from my eyes, and so every now and then, I think you just need to learn some stuff about some place you don't know anything about and he's a colorful writer and a good writer, and really knows the stuff and so anyway, I recommend william Newman's book
0: that sounds great well i I noticed on Facebook that you had a, a wedding anniversary and lobster thermidor was on the menu. I thought maybe you did I, that.
1: Back back before Helen and I got married, in the year before we got married, for some reason she just made lobster thermidor for me from Julia Child's Art of French Cooking cookbook and bought a bottle of champagne to go with it. And She decided for our anniversary, and, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody ever done anything that nice for me at that stage <laughs> of my life, and maybe that's why we got married. I don't know, but anyway, she decided to replicate it, and it was pretty good. So we had a fine forty-sixth anniversary with lobster thermidor. What
0: what is lobster thermidor?
1: Well, you uh, you get a uh, you get some lobster tails, and you cook them, uh, boil them. And then you cut up the meat into little chunks and you make a cream sauce and you get some fresh mushrooms and you mix the lobster and the cream sauce with an awful lot of butter in it and the mushrooms and put it back in the shell and bake it with and It's uh, pretty rich stuff. It's hard to be.
0: Wow. Sounds good. Sounds like it might do me in. Uh, well, I, I have a a sad endorsement, and and that I was uh, really saddened to hear of the of uh, Jim Ma's dying this week. He was a really fantastic singer songwriter who I first became aware of and covered 15 years ago when he put out his uh, release to the sky album. I had some friends who played played on the record with him, and they introduced me, but. He was just one of the most fascinating people in the Arkansas music community. He was a, a longtime insurance claims adjuster who you know mm-hmm. was following natural disasters all over the South for years and years. And he'd write songs. He called it his windshield time. He'd write, write songs in his head. And he, it was important to him that they the lyrics be simple enough that he could he could remember them and but they were always very powerful I mean, he was he was a a, a brilliant lyricist I, I think i've called him more than once arkansas's best songwriter and and i don't think that's hyperbole um he 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 was just a, an immense talent and and had a a, a fascinating music life as well it Was always a side gig he toured around with cdl davis the great helena uh, West Allen, a blues mu- musician, and I uh, got to sit in with Junior Kimbrough years ago. He was hooked up with the folks at Fat Possum and and recorded with with them and some members of Blue Mountain um, and was really widely beloved in and, and the Little Rock music scene and always got some great players to back him up. He talked once he retired about about really focusing on music and doing that full-time and touring and that didn't really come to pass but i'm, uh, I'm glad i got to see him live as, as much as i did and still really treasure his albums would commend to everyone uh his all listen to all his music you start with the, the most recent one let's release it to the sky and i saw somewhere that he'd been recording recently so maybe we'll get a posthumous record also would recommend going to our website and following some of the links uh, will stevenson wrote a fantastic profile of him several years ago and then on facebook and instagram matt white of whitewater tavern wrote just a, a brilliant lovely tribute to jim and what his music meant to him so jim Moss gone too soon All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Stay safe out there. We'll see you next week. We'll see you around. Bye.